today's scripture reading will be 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. So again, that is 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 816. So again, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ, and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sword gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as a lording it over those allocated to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock." And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You, younger men likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What a joy to gather together on the Lord's Day to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for being here. Today we're going to talk about uh, something that uh, has been a need here at uh, Rockville. And just to not get into all the details of that, uh, we have not had an eldership in place here since late in 2017. Uh, there has been a need for that, and, and I, I know that we had said at the time that we would come back and would readdress this. We'd hope to do that in 2018. Uh, more than enough time has passed for us to again put this forward for us as a congregation to, to look at. Today, what I want to give you is an overview. I have some more words to say at the end of this as far as the selection here for the Rockville Church and the process for that. Some of you were here in 2015 when we had an elder selection process and a process that was approved by the congregation at the time. We're going to use that same process uh, this time. Uh, but um, we'll have more to say about that at the, at the end, like I said. But today what I want to present to you before that is a biblical basis for this, why this is, this is a need, why this is the vision of the New Testament church for each local church, if at all possible, to have elders in place, and why we should be praying about that, why we should be pursuing that as a congregation of God's people. What I'm presenting today is an overview. It means that I'm not going to get into all the details of this. When we talked about this in 2015, we had an education process that included uh, several sermons throughout the year and a Bible class period of maybe four, five, six weeks that we spent studying things related to local church leadership. What I'm going to encourage you to do, and I will go ahead and say this, I'm going to be sending an email out along with the bulletin article this day that has some of those passages for you to read in more detail. Well, again, we're doing an overview of them today. But I'm also going to be sending out an email this week through Rosanna. If you're not on that email list, uh, let's get you on there so we can get that uh, to you. That has some links to some of the sermons that were preached in 2015 that if you were not here when we talked about this in more detail or if you would like a refresher on that, this is something we take seriously. We want you to spend some time studying uh, the, the topic and, and make sure that, that you have a as thorough understanding as possible about what this entails, not just for those of you who may end up be potentially serving as an elder, but for all of us who are going to be involved with the selection process. So I'm going to send a link to five sermons that are on our website and also a link to some audio for you to hear about a related topic relating to an elder and his children, which is uh, a, a, an area where 
there is some debate about certain things that we won't be able to get into our sermon today. I had some good discussion on that in the past, and it's about an 18-minute clip from a, a lectureship that I thought handled the issue really well that I'd like you to, to listen to if you've not listened to yet. So be watching for that email this week. But today, I ask you to focus on just an overview of what the Bible teaches about elders, their work, their qualifications, and where we go from here at Rockville. There are three terms that are going to be used in the New Testament that are used somewhat interchangeably. Not every passage is going to use all three of these terms, but there are some that are going to use three, all three terms in regards to the same group of people. And I say a group of people because every example that we have in the New Testament calls upon a plurality to be in place, which is why we have been without that plurality, at least since 2017 here, but we're seeking to reestablish that. The three words are these, episkopos, it means an overseer. Some of the older translations will use the word bishop. It's really drawn from the Greco-Roman world of someone who was a guardian of a city who would oversee uh, the, 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 what would go on within that city. The church used that term to apply to the oversight that this particular person will exercise in a local church. Another word is going to be the noun poimen. This is a noun for a shepherd or a pastor. And that obviously is going to have a lot to say about what the work will entail. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. And then the third word is presbyteros, which most literally means an older man. Now there is no age qualification on that in the scriptures. Uh, it just, but it does mean someone of some maturity. So presbyteros and elder. Now here's some of those places where I want you to see that these three terms are used interchangeably, even in the same place. There's two passages I want you to consider. Acts chapter 20 is one of them. The beginning of that section, this is the Apostle Paul, where it says, from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Now, he's going to have several things to say to the elders. That's one of the passages you'll want to read in more detail as you're considering what it means to serve as an elder, what it, what it means when you're considering what type of people should be serving as an elder. Now, here's some of the, what he's going to say later on in that message. He's going to say, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's second of three terms to shepherd, and this is the verb form of that word this time, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So right there in the same context, you see all three ideas together in relation to the same group of people. So being an elder, being an overseer, being a shepherd, there's a reason why those three terms are used, because they all have th three different angles of looking at the same group of people. They're all important ways for us to consider the work of what is going to go on there. But they're all talking about the same group of people. One more place, if that's not clear to you from Acts chapter 20, maybe it will be from our scripture reading from 1 Peter chapter 5, where... Peter starts off this saying, I exhort the elders among you. And he goes on the next verse and he says, to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, which is from the same word family as overseer. So there's two places where those terms are used interchangeably. Now let's get into more of the particulars of what the work is 
What are we looking at when we talk about the work? And I'm going to use the word shepherding chiefly today when we talk about the work because I think of those three, that one best describes the details of what is involved with serving in this role for a local church. The work of shepherding, there are several places where we can learn about shepherds in the scriptures. One of those places is going to be Ezekiel chapter 34. I actually learned a lot about shepherding from the Hebrew people in the Old Testament. And not only literal shepherding, those same ideas are going to be applied into how local leaders should be handling the people that are under their charge. The people are compared to sheep. The leaders are compared to shepherds. And in Ezekiel's time, uh, the leaders of Israel had not been shepherding as they should have. There were some big time holes there in their understanding of shepherding. And that's what this chapter talks about. But here's some of those responsibilities that are highlighted there. They're still relevant when we talk about shepherds of a local church today. One of those responsibilities is feeding the flock. A shepherd, most literally, when he's taking care of his sheep, he's got to make sure that his sheep are fed. He's got to make sure that their, their diet is a healthy diet. It's a balanced diet. It's a diet that is going to be digestible. It's a diet that is going to actually help them grow and to mature. Now that concept is not only applied here in, in Ezekiel to what is going on spiritually, but even in the New Testament. It uses the same idea. Teaching and learning is often compared to a diet that we're taking in. You know, passages about taking in milk or taking in meat and having a balance between what we are eating spiritually. Uh, so the Word of God is compared to food that we are taking in. And a big responsibility of shepherds is to make sure that the flock that is under their care, which specifically a local church shepherd, it would be everyone who is a member of that particular flock, ultimately which belongs to the universal flock, which belongs to Jesus. But in their work, their flock that they are exercising oversight over, they're feeding that flock, or they're making sure that others are feeding that flock uh, properly, in a balanced way in their teaching, in a truthful way in the teaching, that they are getting a diet that is going to help them to grow, to become more like Jesus. What other things that you're going to see from Ezekiel 34, their responsibility of strengthening the sick, one of the things that they're called out for is not paying attention to, to the sheep that are hurting, the sheep who may be injured here, where you can see that binding the broken. That's the image of a sheep that has broken a leg, and, and in order to help support that leg, they had to do some, some doctoring of it, had to bind it in such a way that it could, could heal on its own. So whenever there is sickness, whenever there is disease, whenever there is brokenness among those sheep, a shepherd who does not take care of the ailments among his flock is not going to have sheep after long if he does not pay careful attention to that. Now, when we apply that to a church context, what do shepherds do? Well, they watch over, they are, they are attentive to both the physical needs, the mental needs, the emotional needs, and the spiritual needs of their flock. They get to know them. They see where the challenges may be for each of those members, and they try to strengthen them through that. And if there is disease among that flock, they're addressing that. If there is brokenness among that flock, they're addressing that. They care about them. They will not just let them wander off on their own and die. And that's what is going on here as well. Bringing back the scattered and seeking the lost. 
Jesus tells parables about sheep that go astray, and a good shepherd will go and find those sheep, even if it's just one. He doesn't just focus on, well, we've still got 99 out of 100, we're doing fine. No, he cares about each one, and he will go to whatever lengths that he can to try to bring back that one. Keeping that flock together, keeping them healthy, ultimately that is what shepherding a local church is about. Attention to the needs of the people and, and helping them to grow in a community together. Now you see some of these same ideas in, in a passage that's about the Lord as our shepherd. Psalm 23, one that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. You see here that God is the ultimate shepherd is the example of what it means. To lead the flock to peace. That's what is meant by the quiet waters and the green pastures, a place where they will find peace among themselves. Elders are peacemakers. They guide in the right paths. That's what a shepherd does, or the paths of righteousness. So they are are paying attention to where the flock is is walking. And then there is the idea of protecting the flock. The flock in that passage expresses faith, expresses trust in God as a shepherd because he has a rod and he has a staff. Those are the instruments that a shepherd would use to make sure that any enemies that were out to try to devour the members of the flock, that they would be protected from those potential enemies. It's an idea you also see in John chapter 10. Here we have a picture of Jesus as the good shepherd, or as 1 Peter chapter 5 calls him, the chief shepherd. And what does he do? There's some specific things there that, that we can learn about not only Jesus as our ultimate shepherd, but those who will serve as shepherds under him. And that's the first, is that those who will be shepherds of a local church, they are not, in, as un, they are not on top of a food chain, as we may say. They are working under the chief shepherd, Jesus. Their understanding has to be that they are what we might call under-shepherds. They have been designated uh, as according to Acts chapter 20. They've been chosen by the Holy Spirit. They have been given tasks under the guidance of Jesus Christ himself as the chief shepherd. So everything that they do needs to be in concert with what Jesus would do. Their ultimate goal is to bring every member of that flock closer to Jesus. So they need to know the sheep as Jesus would know them. They need to protect the sheep from those potential enemies, the false teachers, the ones who were trying to be divisive and, and stir up uh, things that should not be stirred up, the ones who are trying to, to sow discord among the flock. They're watching out for those things. And they ultimately are making sure that the sheep know the voice of the chief shepherd, Jesus. Their voice needs to reflect the chief shepherd Jesus as much as is humanly possible. They are growing to be like Jesus so that they can bring others to follow Jesus. They do not want to separate the sheep from their chief shepherd. Let's consider this from Ephesians chapter 4. This term of shepherding or pastors, what some of your translations are going to say here, is also going to be used. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Now, this is a passage that we go to for unity. It's a passage that we go to about spiritual gifts, the different kinds of gifts that God has given us. And among those, 
actually the pastoring or shepherding is put together with the idea of teaching there. Now we've already seen that that's related to feeding the flock, to making sure that they have the proper diet long term, uh, that they are going to be growing and maturing as God would want them to. Now along with that, here's some of the work of, of shepherding that goes along with that teaching. There's some training that is there. They are working to, and by the way, this is not just the job of shepherds. This is all of us working together, but they are overseeing this as it's organized in a local church. This is God's vision of this, of the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Some of the most important work that a shepherd can do is to understand how to equip and how to delegate so that we all can be involved. Equip, involve, delegate the whole flock. Uh, that, that means that if we have shepherds in place, and I said this back in 2015, and, and, and I hope that, that we understood it when we did have them in place, that does not mean that, good, we've got elders, they can do all of our work for us now. No, that is not it at all. It means that they are overseeing the work of the congregation, ultimately, to make sure people are equipped to handle all the different duties so that they don't have to micromanage everything that is going on in the entire church. Ultimately, they are helping the whole church mature as part of this. Let me give you an example of this. An eldership, and this is why I'm focusing on shepherding as maybe even the primary metaphor that the scriptures use for this. An eldership is not a business-modeled board of directors. I, I think in too many ways a lot of our churches have taken that idea from the business world. We even often set up our meetings that way as, as we adopt that from the business world. And it's not all wrong that is there. But we end up taking that model and we say, well, this is what the elders do. They sit in the room and they, they meet periodically and they make the decisions for the church and they handle the matters of money. Now, I'm not saying that they're not involved with those things. What I am saying is I think that misses the primary responsibility of what shepherding is all about. Ultimately, it is my view that, and I think it's scripturally based from what I'm reading about responsibilities of shepherds, is that ultimately, that their job ultimately is it's not to micromanage every financial decision, too many times when you get into that business model and in t the uh, work of the elders can become just going through and, and seeing what budget is, is dedicated to this and, and seeing, well, what's going on with the upkeep of the, the physical property that is owned by a church. And then some of the more important matters, I'm not saying that's not important, but some of the matters that they are more specifically assigned to the watching out to make sure that people are here, to make sure that people are growing, to try to help those who are in need, making sure that those things are taken care of. Sometimes those things get either put on the back burner or neglected entirely. And I just encourage you, if, if you're someone that's, whose name may come up as nominated uh, for serving as a shepherd, that you'll understand as you read through these passages what the primary responsibilities are and understanding how a lot of those matters that we get so bogged down on can be delegated to others to handle those so that you can do the watching over people's souls, which is the primary work of an elder. Now, we talked about work. 
Let's talk about qualifications. Again, I'm not going to be able to, in the time that we have today, to answer all the questions that you may have about this. We spent a lot of time in 2015 talking about this. I'm giving you an overview of two passages, and then we'll come back to 1 Peter chapter 5, which we already read, which is related to, to qualifications and, and a little more of the motive of serving in that passage. But consider a few things from 1 Timothy 3, first of all. Again, as you read this passage in detail, I know what I'm giving you is not in the order that these qualifications are given to us in 1 Timothy 3, but I'm trying to break them down into some categories of, of the overall things that you are considering whenever you are looking at potential people to serve in that role. Maturity is one of those. The text says most, most literally he's not a neophyte. That means he's not a new plant. He's not a new convert. Now, how do you define new convert? Well, the text doesn't give us that information. Uh, we don't need to put stipulations there that aren't given to us in the text. But they, they don't need to be someone who has come to Christ just in recent weeks or recent months. And there needs to be some time of maturity that they have grown to. It can't be that we put a stipulation, well, they have to have been Christians for, for 30 years in order to serve in that role. Well, the Bible doesn't do that. There were elders in place uh, that certainly had not been followers of Jesus for 30 years by the time that they were put in place because we see elders being established pretty early on in these churches. But at the same time, it's not a matter of, of so much age or how long they've been a Christian, but have they reached some point of maturity where they have a grasp on the, what the message of the Word of God is and, and know how to handle people, have the maturity to be able to do that, who, who you would trust to be confidential, on, hold confidentiality on certain matters, those types of things that come with maturity. It, it, ultimately, it's a matter of, of trust as you're handing some responsibility over to them. So there is maturity as, as part of that that is expected. By the way, for any of these, let me say this. None of these are saying that an elder is a perfect man. There's no such thing outside of Jesus Christ himself. He is someone who is a sinner. He's been saved by the grace of God. He has weaknesses, both spiritually, and he has, may have other challenges that he faces he may have health challenges. He may have challenges with his time and, and other things that may make him uh, hesitant to serve in, in the role. Jesus has never called uh, an elder to be someone who's absolutely perfect. Uh, he's someone who loves God, loves people, and wants to bring people closer to God. But there is a family track record as part of this. Some of the qualifications here, and I think there's good reason for this. He's a one-woman man is most literally what the text says. That means he's, he's not a polygamist. He's the husband of one wife. Uh, polygamy was still going on and then some of the surrounding cultures around Christianity at the time want to make sure that this man is, is not trying to take on more than one woman. But I tell you what, it's not limited just to that. It, it's also a one-woman man is someone who's not just married to one woman. He's devoted to that one woman. Okay, you can be married to one woman but you can be a flirt with a lot of other women. And if there's someone who comes across that way in his relationships with other women outside of his wife, then he doesn't need to be serving in the role as an elder. That's a, that's a very dangerous setup for both him and for the congregation if you put someone in there who, who does not, at least everything that we know about him, the fruit that he has given us to inspect, seems to be devoted to his wife. Manages his own household well. 
keeping his children under control with all dignity goes along with that management. He's a steward of his household. Why would God look for someone who has a track record of marriage and of having children? Well, he's going to be managing the family of God, and that's exactly what the text is going to say. He's going to be in a similar role as a father would be in his household to when he's serving as a shepherd of the congregation. And so you need to be able to see some evidence. Has he handled his family well? We'll see some more about that in Titus in just a moment. But there's also this. There are specific character traits that you're looking for in someone who's going to serve in this role. The text is going to use the word temperate. Now put some things under temperance here. They're mentioned in the text, and the text doesn't necessarily arrange these the way that I have here, but these are related to temperance. We may see temperance as more of an umbrella term for some things that are related to that. Well, he's temperate in relation to what? It means that he has some self-control in relation to what? He's not addicted to alcohol. He's not someone who you would would question if he has a substance abuse problem. Uh, The text literally says he's not given to much wine. Uh, He's free from the love of money. That's an important one. I know that money should not be the the primary focus of elders in the first place, but he will be involved with decision-making and then some things related to money. You need someone who is not greedy, someone who is not attached to that, and that could be an ulterior motive. You need someone who is peaceable and gentle rather than quarrelsome. Those ideas are put against each other here. Being a peacemaker... Uh, being someone who, is, who can handle those conversations with people, sometimes very tough conversations, but can do so with love. Someone who is not intentionally a divisive person, who is looking to stir up things and sow discord. He's someone who is not a brawler. He's not, he doesn't, I've known people who, uh, and thankfully I haven't seen this in shepherds that I've had personal relationship with, I've known people who are just driven by controversy. And they're driven by getting in on a fight and they love to argue. That's not, that's not what an elder should be. There'll be moments when he has to take a stand for the truth, absolutely. But he, need, he does not to be, need to be a quarrelsome person. He needs to be a peacemaker, someone who can handle those situations. Able to teach. That doesn't mean that he has to, to get up and, and give the best sermon you've ever heard doesn't even necessarily mean that he has to have skill in the pulpit. It just means that he knows the Word of God well enough where he can talk with someone about the Word of God and, and he, he knows Scripture, he knows what's true and what's not. He's rightly dividing it in his own study. And he can have a conversation with someone using the Bible and can teach it to others. He's got that that goes along with his maturity as a Christian. He's prudent and he's hospitable. Again, in his relationship to how he's going to be handling ideas, how he's going to be handling people. He's someone who cares. And then we have this, his overall reputation. He's above reproach. He's respectable. He has a good reputation, not only in the body of Christ, but this is an important one too. He's got a good reputation with those outside the church. Now, I know Jesus tells us that everyone who follows him in some ways is going to be hated by the world. We're going to be slandered by people. But overall, Jesus himself, we are told, as he was growing in wisdom and in stature, he was growing in favor with God and with man. 
So having a reputation for love and good works, not only among the body of Christ, but among the outside world, is important. Otherwise, he's going to be in a position to bring reproach not only on himself, but on the entire local church. Consider some thoughts from Titus chapter 1. Most of these go along with what we've already looked at. But here's some of the things that are highlighted in Titus 1. He's not to be self-willed. There's a lot of warnings about this. Make sure his motives are, are right in this. Again, not addicted to alcohol, not given to much wine. He's not quick-tempered. That's an important one. If you're going to be dealing with some, some matters where you could easily lose your temper and, and say things uh, that come across um, a, a, with abusive language, that's the, something we've got to be very careful about, not someone who needs to, to be serving in that role. Again, he's not quarrelsome. He's not greedy for gain. What is he instead of that? He's above reproach again. He's hospitable. He's upright. He's devout. He loves what is good. He's self-controlled. He's disciplined. Some of these are synonyms, but there's that repetition of these ideas. He's someone that, that is practicing his own spiritual discipline. He's got a prayer life, uh, learning the Bible. He's got a personal relationship with God that will be contagious in how he shares that with the rest of the congregation. And again, he has a family track record here too. Again, you see the same expression used. He's a one-woman man, husband of one wife. It's my conviction that this does not mean that, that it doesn't mean, it just means that he is, he's devoted to that one woman. It doesn't mean that he can't have had a spouse in the past that has uh, passed away or that he has had a legitimate reason uh, to, to remarry. It just means that he's shown that he is devoted to one woman. He's faithful. Having believing children, some translations will say faithful children. Again, there's some debate about this that I encourage you to, to listen to that file that we're sending out this week about some of the, the questions that can come up around uh, this issue. But the text says he either has believing children, faithful children, who are not open to the charge of debauchery or rebellion. Again, this goes along with uh, the fact that he's someone who is experienced enough where his children have demonstrated a, a faith of their own uh, and that he's managed his household well uh, to bring these two passages together. And ultimately, the last thing that Titus is going to say in this section goes along with the, the soundness of his understanding of the word and of his teaching of that word and his oversight of what is taught about the word. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So he's got to be a student of the word, someone who loves God and loves truth and is able to exhort others in the word and to understand, to recognize when there is blatant false teaching and knows how to, to refute that. Okay, having said all of that, I know this is a quick summary of these things. Again, we preached on them in more detail. One more passage I want to look at, and it comes back to our, our motives, the motives and the method that are used by an elder. 1 Peter 5, that text, there's really three contrasts that this text sets up. If someone is considering serving in this role, or if we're considering encouraging them to serve in this role, it needs to be voluntary and not compulsory. We can't tie anyone down and force them to serve in this role. Not only would that be unbiblical, it would not be wise. We would not get good service out of them. They would resent that. 
Now, I think we can encourage people to see a need and to see that, that they, they meet qualifications to meet that need and that there's responsibility there. But at the same time, this ultimately has got to be a, a willingness. And there was, there's a desire that is there in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as well. It's got to be something that they, they desire. <clears throat> so voluntary, not compulsory. Another idea here is this contrast. It cannot be an eagerness that is for personal gain. You cannot be in this for yourself as a path to prestige, as a path to power, or whatever else you may view the position as. That cannot be the motive. It's got to be a genuine eagerness to serve. And then lastly, how you carry out once you're in that position. Because the text is about to tell the rest of us that we need to, we need to respect you. We need to submit to you. We need to, we need to go along with your leadership. But as part of that, the caveat to that is that you understand that even though others are under your care and you will be leading them in certain decisions, you are not to do it in such a way as lording authority over them. You are an example. You are a shepherd, not a cattle driver. You walk out in front of the sheep. You set the tone for the path that they are walking in. You don't just stand behind and crack the whip and then tell them where to go. There's a big difference there. Having said all of that today, the selection. And other passages such as what Titus is told in chapter 1, verse 5, to appoint elders in every city. Now that is an apostle telling someone else who is in that apostolic circle, he's an inspired man, uh, that he is giving him that task on the island of Crete specifically where Titus would have been. Now, some people would take that passage and would say, well, okay, Titus is a minister of the gospel. Well, he's got the authority to, to appoint those elders. So everyone who is, a, who is an evangelist, who's a minister of the gospel, who's a pulpit preacher, should have the authority to appoint who the elders are. I have trouble going there. I don't, I, for many reasons. I see a closer biblical precedent. And, well, let me say this. I'm not, I'm not told that specifically from Paul. Titus is being told this specifically from Paul. I don't have that authority to do that. I do think that I can be someone as a catalyst to initiate that process, but this has got to be all of us working together on this. I think you see precedent for that in similar situations. I know elders are not being selected in these situations, but there are two places I encourage you to read. In Acts chapter 1, there's a replacement for an apostle. Uh, that was, And you see the whole congregation of people, men and women, uh, work, may, working together to pray about it and to make that selection. In Acts chapter 6, you see the whole Jerusalem church involved with the situation for people who are designated uh, to take on benevolence tasks, even before there are elders in place in that Jerusalem church. Both of those cases, you see the entire church involved in that process. After studying this, what I've concluded and what we put forward in 2015 is that since we don't have a detailed selection process that's given to us in the scriptures, but we do have principles of all Christians who are part of the body of Christ being involved with that, that there is some liberty there of how we go about that, but that we need to use wisdom in how we do that. 
Two weeks from today, we are going to be beginning what we call our nomination phase. Again, there are details about this in your bulletin. There will be more details in the, the form that will be available to all who are members of the Rockville Church. This is for men, for women, uh, for everyone to be able to contribute. Who, from your study, from your prayers, from your conversations with people and what you know about the fruit that you have seen in their lives, who you believe could potentially serve as an elder according to the Bible. This doesn't mean that whoever you put on that nomination form is that that's the final choice. It just means someone that you would like to be approached for consideration. Those, who, those whose names are on at least 50% of those forms will be approached that you have been selected by the church for consideration for this. And they will have an option then to pray about that and, and see if they will, will go into our next phase, which will be responding to some questions that were already submitted back in 2015, giving some, some responses to that so we can get to know them a little better to make sure that, that, um, that they're willing, that they're able, that we put our confidence in them. And then we will have a final affirmation phase after we hear back from them. The details of that, again, will be in things that will be coming to you coming up. For now, what I encourage you to think about, to pray about, and to be studying. Be studying these passages that I've given you, both in the sermon today and in the bulletin. Watch for that email this week. If you want to go into more details, I encourage you to, especially if you weren't here in 2015, on some of those other passages that are related to that. We have sermons talking about how elders were used in the Old Testament, uh, what some more specifics of what shepherding work is. We get into more details about the qualifications, several of those things in those lessons. And then listen to that, that conversation uh, that was... Um, that was handled by a brother at Fried Hartman University, Brother Ralph Gilmore, whom I respect a great deal, uh, handling some issues related to an elder and his children. Spend some time with that. And I encourage you to look around in our congregation and really exhaust the possibilities in your mind. Consider not only, again, one requirement that I have emphasized before. Someone is required to, to not be a new convert. But there is no specification on how long someone has to have been a member of our particular local congregation. There was a lot of moving around in the first century, too. I do think it's, it's wise for someone to, to be somewhere long enough where they have an idea of who the flock is. But I don't think that takes as long as what we sometimes say. I would encourage you to consider maybe even some people who have who maybe even back in 2015, 16, 17, may not have been here at the time or may not have been in a position where they were ready at the time, but maybe would reconsider that at this time. My prayer, my hope, is that we put this in the hands of God and we work together, we get back to a point where our local congregation can reflect what we see in the New Testament church. Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne of grace today thanking you for your design of what a local church should be. Father, in the interim, continue to guide us through decision-making, through the delegation of, of different tasks that need to go on, through the teaching and the organization of other things. But Father, we, 
We seek your way. We seek uh, a plurality of, of elders in place here. Uh, we pray for, for men who meet these qualifications, who have a love for you, have a love for people, who would do well shepherding the flock. We pray for, for them, for their willingness, for their desire to step up into that role. We pray that you would guide all of us in our selection, guide us in our thinking through this. We pray for wisdom. We know that if we ask for it in faith, that you give it to us. And so we do so today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Today, if you're here and you're struggling with something in your life that we can pray about, if there's... Uh, uh, if you are not a Christian today and you'd like to talk about becoming part of the body of Christ, being baptized into him for the remission of your sins by faith in the working of God, where you will go down into the waters of baptism, become a part of Jesus Christ, that whenever you are raised, you are raised to walk in newness of life with him, where he no longer sees your sins. He sees you as washed in that blood of Jesus. If you have a need, please come as together we stand and as we sing.